Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 26 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. The subject for discussion today, of course, is the final third of Robert Jackson Bennett's Foundry Side. I'm your host, as usual, Rob Santos, and joining me again is my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? Drew, my dude, Foundry Side. Any opening thoughts? Um... Ah, I'm, I'm trying to kind of. Mm. Oh, really? You sound uh, you sound really excited about this one. So I am excited about it. I, I will say I am excited. Um, okay. It's it's a book that I enjoyed reading, and there are aspects of it that I really loved. But I think overall, I maybe should have enjoyed it more than I did. It's it's kind of a weird. Uh, mindset that I have coming out of the book. Um, Ambiv- I'm ambivalent, would you say? Not ambivalent, not ambivalent. Like, I, I did enjoy it, uh, but I enjoyed it less at the end than I did, you know, at the end of part two where we left off last week. Um, hmm. I, I think it's simply... I think Bennett failed to fully execute a really, really ambitious... Uh, plan with this book there were a a lot of twists a lot of turns a lot of what should have been surprises and I feel like I predicted almost all of them way early in the book and thus it kind of failed to land I mean just thinking back to our episode last week how many of the predictions that we brought up I have a whole point about that in my opener pretty much like I agree basically with pretty much everything that you just said I feel like Bennett was was being I don't know I think his eyes were a little bigger than his stomach if that's how I want to put it I think what he attempted to do with this with this first volume is that he attempted to to get this huge groundwork planned and it just to me it felt very convoluted it felt very confusing long-winded in some parts i did enjoy there were there were lots of this lots of parts in this book that i straight up enjoyed with hands down i do have a lot to to uh, promote concerning this book but overall i mean the amount of predictions that we made like you just mentioned that that came true things that i feel like should have been surprises and just straight up you know at the point of revelation was like yeah of course (laughs) you know um i don't know i i Overall, I am feeling pretty ambivalent about this book. I did hmm. enjoy it, but there were a lot of parts where I, I got really frustrated. And now, of course, I'll be discussing that, you know, much more throughout the course of this particular episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, like, I, I feel like if Bennett simply uh, tried to do a little less in this book, he would have pulled it off better. Um, there were there were just so many of those things that he wanted to make surprises that he didn't really have a room to adequately adequately develop all of them. I think, um, you know, like there were there were certain things like, for instance, uh, Sanchia and Berenice. Right? We we picked up on that. We both noticed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, but there was like one hint. Right? Yeah, in the first half of the book. And do you think it's we because just we're just so good at what on. we do by now? <laughs> it might be. I mean, it, yeah, it, you know, we're, you know, we're pretty astute readers, both of us. You know, we have a lot of practice reading books like this, um, and and you know, and so when 
Sanchia and Veronese start, like, you know, coming a little more forward in their interests, it, it's not surprising. And, uh, but, but even more than that, like, the culminating moment of it, right, where, like, the, uh, they finally kiss, and... Yeah. And Sanchia has this um, kind of moment of catharsis where that's like her first real chance to to be physically intimate with another human being without the torture of mm-hmm. you know her scribings and i i felt like that didn't land with all the impact it could have because he was so busy earlier in the book concentrating on setting up all of these different things there wasn't a whole lot of oomph built up behind this idea that Sanchia can't touch other people you know it was mentioned like maybe once or twice but it was just mentioned offhandedly it didn't it it wasn't accompanied by any sort of real emotion or real um you know uh uh, impact in those moments so when the impact is supposed to land here at the end it 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 felt more like a flick than a punch so to speak okay i i I agree with that i agree with that I, i i do think that uh drawing you know harkening back really really quickly to uh a book we did previous. Oh, you know what? That actually might be. A sp- no, never mind. I'm not going to mention that. Um, All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Because I figured. You know, I think that I know what you were going to say. Be kind of us. There, but... there was another very similar moment in a book that we just did recently that I felt was handled a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that had a lot more weight to it. Uh, to use your terminology, a lot more oomph to it. Definitely. This one, uh, I was waiting for it, and when it finally happened, it was kind of. Uh, I don't want to say anticlimactic because I was. I was still, you know, pretty excited about it, but. You're right. There was just so much happening at the time, and there wasn't really a whole lot of build-up to it in the chapters previously, in the novel previously. There was, like you yeah. said, very, very subtle hints, or maybe just one or two hints, but that that was a very, very, very important moment for Sanchez that I felt just kind of got like swept under the rug immediately. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That, that, that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of feeling a little, mm, I don't know about the overall impact of this book and how it had on me, you know? But uh, Yeah, so, yeah, I, I, and again, I think I mentioned this in the, the first episode on Foundryside, excuse me, um, how in a lot of ways this book reminded me, like, stylistically of Brandon Sanderson, and it, it fell kind of in, in this, like, middle ground between, like, the tone of Scott Lynch's Gentleman Bastards yeah. and, and the tone of, like, Sanderson's Mistborn or Warbreaker. And, um, and I mentioned how I expected there to be what is essentially a Sanderson avalanche in the second half of this book. And there very much was. Absolutely. Right? I mean, you know, we're talking about how many different twists and turns and surprises and, and whatever. Yep, the very uh, short as, viewpoints, the repeated, you know, yeah. Yeah, because it felt like um, at the end of part two that that should have been around halfway through the book, but really it was closer to like 70%. Yeah. And, uh, and basically from the get-go all of part three was the climax that was our sanderson avalanche for for lack of a better term here but it also felt to me like uh you know a sanderson avalanche that was not written by brandon sanderson (laughs) that fair enough fair enough it, it, it wasn't as deftly handled as i think sanderson has uh you know developed his his climaxes um it felt a little all over the place. It was a little messy. Uh, it didn't everything didn't 
quite fit together in that really, really satisfying way that we'll get in books like Words of Radiance or Oathbringer or The mm-hmm. Bands of Mourning or you know something like that. Um, so, so at the same time, though, I'm not going to say that it wasn't satisfying because aspects of it were. I think for me, what I enjoyed the most here was the way he built up the lore and the history of this world and is slowly bringing that uh, out, especially by the end when we have Valeria released and we know um, we know much more about how the Hierophants worked and and you know how their scribings operated with the you know the human sacrifice and and all of that and then we have this final reveal that was maybe surprising maybe not so surprising uh in the in part four of this dark prophet you know the moth guy yeah who who by the way is totally Crescides, right oh 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 i knew i hadn't considered that i can't oh, that believe was, like, i hadn't considered thing, that that was like the first thing that came to my mind there i was like this this is totally him right Why did i like, not consider that yeah huh oh because uh, he's got like the flowing like the flowing like well, cloth wrappings it's got the, the black cloth wrappings like a mummified corpse it's like all yeah. he's made of moths that are constantly like making up his form i guess mm-hmm. you know yeah and then and then we had like clef's memory of oh the that's CDs, right like, opening the, the casket or, or the stars or, yeah, and, the, the box that's right and he's and he's wearing like the cloth wrappings and yeah 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 oh uh, yeah so yeah, not, you know, in retrospect, actually, I had all the pieces. They just hadn't been assembled yet. Huh. Yeah, but, yeah, and, and, and um, I'll, I'll respond to your previous point there uh, by agreeing for, the, for you know, the, the most part. I just, uh, <laughs> like, with, the, with what you said about how it definitely read a bit like a Sanderson avalanche that wasn't read, that wasn't read, it wasn't written by Brandon Sanderson. I agree. And I do, I agree, again, that it wasn't as deftly handled as, you know, uh, I would have hoped for. But I also want to offer a bit of context, I suppose. I mean, this is Bennett. He's not a. It's not his debut novel. He does have some experience, but he's not quite as accomplished. He's not quite as experienced, I would say, as Brandon Sanderson is. And if you think about it, I would say that this sort of avalanche, if that's the the term I'm, I want to use here, did kind of feel a little more like that of, say, Elantris back when Brandon Sanderson wasn't quite as practiced at his craft. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, but but a lot more ambitious in oh exactly yeah. Than, See, than Sanderson Elantris, knew exactly. Yeah. I feel like Sanderson knew exactly what he was going for way before he started with Elantris, and he wasn't trying to cram too much into Elantris. It, like we pretty much had everything answered that we wanted to know, with the exception of a couple big mysteries. But the way that Bennett left this book off, I feel like we really haven't even scratched the surface of the deep lore, regardless of how much of it we've been given a glimpse of so far. Um, so, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that, that particular aspect of it. I, I like that there's a lot left, presumably a lot left, un, unexplored, that we're going to get to dig into in, in oh, yeah. future books. Um, you know, uh, again, I'm going to draw it back to Scott Lynch and, and what he's done with the Eldrin and the ancient history of his world there versus the Occidentals and, you know, the Hierophants and the ancient history of uh, Bennett's world here, you know, when you think about, um, actually, no, I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into detail because you haven't read uh, 
all of Lies of Locke Lamora, have you? Uh, no, I've, I've read, like, the first half. Yeah. No, first two-thirds of Lies of Locke Lamora. But, but, but you know at least, you know, the basic layout there. You know, like, I mean, it's, it's one all of the I remember like, out of that early chapters is there. Some, is some dude dra- and the word mm. via camorazza repeated over and over and over and over again. But you got a you got a lot more than just a couple chapters. I did, you, I did. Nice bird ass. <laughs> I did. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I I I keep drawing this this parallel between Foundry Side and Gentleman Bastards. But that's that's because good because the I way feel like the world is built up. Really and need the to stop mystery. comparing to Sanderson. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like the mystery in the lore, and and I think you know we we have a pretty good grounding in that uh, to kick us off um, in Foundry Side uh, going forward in this trilogy. I I loved that we got that scene toward the end with Clef, with the original Clef. Uh, yeah. Okay. You know the man. Um, I I am simultaneously baffled by and intrigued by Valeria uh, the editor this this artificial god angel whatever devil you want to yep. call it um, I, I think there's awesome stuff to come there uh, and and I do like the way he set up the second book at the end where we have essentially like a, a really multifaceted conflict coming up. You know, we, we have Orso and Sanchia and Berenice and all them with their new founded house. Mm, yeah. We have the Dandolo interests with Ophelia and, and this Dark Prophet. We have a conflict with Gregor. We don't really know what his deal is going to be going forward. We don't know how he's going to fully, like, recover or react to the events that Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we still have Valeria is is like kind of an antagonist kind of like maybe on Sanchia's side because she owes Yeah, she's Sanchia definitely something. a wild card at the moment, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. And then and then we of course have just the general um uh Tavon uh culture and the issues uh, you know the the inequalities, the anarchy, the barely controlled anarchy I should say. Like yeah. like there's a lot to to explore over the next Two books, right? This is supposed to be a trilogy. Yeah, I, I think I read it was supposed to be a trilogy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm like ninety percent certain on that one. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I I like the way the this book left off in relation to what the second book can be. I'm just not totally enamored by the way Bennett wrapped up everything in this book. Well, I'll take that point one step further. Actually, even though it's supposed to be, you know, supposedly supposed to be a trilogy. I just the amount of lore that we get it just it feels like this is the start of a 10 book series and I don't know how we're going to get quite everything wrapped up because again we really haven't even done much more than scratch the surface of the deep lore so you know concerning the the occidentals the hierophants and and Crisides and and I mean I personally want to know more about you know uh Tribuno Candiano's madness and exactly what the hell is happening there you know, uh, just there's there's so much more to happen that it, it it doesn't feel like the first third. It feels like the first tenth, and I think I mean I just I can only see that being a problem going forward unless Bennett has 
something genius planned. And he might. I have to give it to him. I mean, he might have the perfect plan going forward. But as this book left me, I'm still kind of reeling a little bit. I'm, I'm <laughs> satisfied in a lot of ways, but I'm still kind of just straight up confused. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And and I think it's a, a justified worry to bring into the second book. It, you know, knowing how he wrapped up such a convoluted, complex plot in the first book and seeing how much more complex it could potentially get over the next two books how effectively will he be able to wrap it all up by the end of the third yeah you know? and he who knows maybe he'll extend it to more than three i mean sanderson's infamous <laughs> for doing stuff like that right is is sanderson infamous, infamous oh, cool. oh i, I mean like that's more uh, let's, let's, a, a, okay a let's take mistborn era two for example that was supposed to be a novella which turned into a trilogy, which turned into four books. Because when he when he announced book two was done, he was like, "Oh, by the way, I wrote book three as well, and there's gonna yeah, be a book four. That's one thing. That started it's, it's off as a novella, like... though. I mean, that's just I don't know. I feel like that's just the mark of somebody who's too damn creative for their own good. Uh, I mean, I, I just <laughs> I don't identify that with Brandon Sanderson no? so much as like George R. R. Martin, Robert Jordan. Oh, I know, mean, guys those are like, stellar examples right there. You know, but, yeah, they planned something as a trilogy and it turned into just, a fourteen yeah. book series or a, a seven, maybe, <laughs> maybe seven. As much as I love yeah. Robert Jordan, I will have to say, I mean, who knows? That could have turned into a twenty book series. You know. Oh, I mean, I don't. We'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, we'll get much into more. That. <laughs> in, a, in just a couple of weeks here, in fact. Yeah, uh, you never uh, know. Actually, you um, do know, because we will tell yeah. you soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've already been posting on social media about, <laughs> I suppose. about that. So. And by the time this comes uh, <laughs> out, we'll be much more public with that. Yeah, no. Okay, makes yeah. sense. Um, but but anyway, you know, this is... Uh, it's it's not something I expect Bennett to just be like, oh, yeah, by the way, this is going to be a five-book series or something. I, I do think we're going to be looking at a trilogy here. I, I do think that he's going to wrap it up as best he can. Um but, uh, but, but let, let's kind of move on from, from this yes. high level and, and let's dig into the characters a little bit. Here. Cool, cool. Sanchia. Um, I, I, I like her less in the second half than I did in the first half. Um, okay. I think it was cool how Valeria edited her uh, scribings and turned her into an editor herself. I think that gives us a lot of opportunity for new things, but I also, I, it, it, <laughs> it makes her less interesting to me. It, 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 her biggest conflict, I felt like internal conflict, has just been solved. She doesn't have to deal with this, you know, she has an on-off switch now, yeah. right? Like, you know, and, and she doesn't, she doesn't have the object empathy anymore, so she can just... Her her biggest internal struggles in this book were the scribing's effects upon her and her uh, self-identity as a slave. And she overcame both of those. One of them a lot more easier than the other. A lot more easier? Wow. Easily. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about <laughs> stopping there, but I was like, nah, I'm going to continue. Um, but... But because of that, I'm, like, I don't know, I'm less engaged. I still like her, but I'm less engaged with her character going forward. I think Orso and Berenice and Gregor, especially Gregor, have way more interesting things ahead of them than Sanchia. Wow. And so, so Sanchia here, like, you know, she had some really, 
really fun moments in the second half uh, going into you know the mountain and talking to the mountain I had a lot of fun with that mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know these conversations that, that she has with with these scribed personalities are, are uh, a really nice touch that Bennett brought in um, but but I just don't in the end I'm not as interested in Sanchia as I was midway through the book interesting well I'm going to take that, that point that you just offered me and I'm going to completely disagree with it Ooh. <laughs> I, I will start off by saying I immensely appreciated Sanchia's journey through the latter half of this book um, you know as you were just talking about like Valeria's supposition that, that Sanchia is a, is a slave to her scribing because she views herself as a slave if not an outright object you know that presented a huge obstacle for her um, or I should well actually it revealed a big obstacle to her and one that had been disguised as simply part of who she was and I thought that was you know, that, was, that presented an excellent moral dilemma for our protagonist, and it kind of, you know, ultimately showed her the path to that sort of self-actualization that she had been lacking up until this point. And I thought Bennett handled that part really well. Um, okay, I, I, I want to... No, go ahead. ...get some clarity on, on what you mean by... Sure. ...her identity as a slave to her scribing. Well, that, that's... And, and what exactly okay. that entailed. Okay, so... Valeria made the point to her that she can be controlled through her scribing by the Imperiate because she views herself as a slave. Yes. And that okay. was why she was a slave to the Imperiate. So right away in that moment, I was thinking, oh, okay, so a big climax is going to happen in this book or maybe in another book, probably in this book, where she has to overcome the Imperiate by changing how she views herself, by accepting the fact that she is not a slave and that this 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 obstacle will be overcome. And by the way, that was a that was a point yeah. in well, I thought in Valeria's favor at the beginning. I started to trust Valeria, despite the fact. Uh, we'll we'll get to so Valeria confusing. in a bit. Oh, but I have more to go on after that too. Yeah, don't we'll, when we get to Valeria, yeah. I will definitely expand, uh, 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 expound. Is that a word? whatever upon yeah, that point? Yeah, expound. Um, yeah. So, but you know, there was there okay. was the, the scene where Sanchia escapes from the abandoned foundry. She returns to, and I want to say this because this was something I found interesting. Something I guess about my. Um, or I was going to say comprehension, but I'll say lack thereof uh, up until this point. Something I hadn't realized. Mm. So she escapes from the abandoned foundry. She returns to Orso and, and Berenice. She's covered in blood and, and, and sewage and everything. <coughs> Sorry. And we get her full name, Grado. And I was confused in oh. that moment because I didn't remember ever reading it before. I mean, granted, I was, like I said in the last podcast, we, my we previous did half. have it. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah. My previous half was all done through audio. I didn't remember ever getting her last name, so I opened the search in book function on my e-reader since the entire second half was done, you know, via text, and I entered her last name, and it turns out that was the fourth time we got it. You had it yeah. once in chapter one, once in chapter eight, once in chapter 17, and then that time in chapter 33. And I just want to yeah. say, what a useful thing the e-reader is. I mean, it really is the future, <laughs> folks. There's, there's no other way to read as far as I'm concerned. Oh is, well, I mean, I'm gonna disagree. With I you mean, there. I would, it's, like, it's great to have it's great to have the collection, and I will still continue to buy the physical copies of of every book that authors release that I really, really love. Brandon Sanderson. I'll probably get Doors of Stone when Rothfuss whenever finally gets off his ass oh. and, and publishes that one. You know, but it's just, the e-reader is just that's how I will be primarily consuming the content, regardless of the fact that I have the physicals and I have the audiobooks. The e-reader is just so goddamn convenient. It really is. So I, I mean, I, to to 
piggyback on this tangent here. Sure. You can you can rip my my hardcover foundry side right here out of my cold dead hands. <laughs> but okay. You know, like I I will always vastly prefer reading a book with you know a hard copy of it. Um, but I do also tend to buy e ebooks. You know of books I already own in, in a physical format. So on rereads and on, you know, uh, deeper analysis and things, especially now that I'm like writing for tour.com and I'm, and I'm working on like, you know, yep. real like literary essays, uh, for science fiction and fantasy stuff. It is easy to have like a very searchable format. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can just you hit, can't the, beat hit the, the search function and yeah, you can't beat the yeah. convenience of having the e-reader with you being able to do all this stuff, that search and book function and not and just, Putting aside the fact that you can carry your entire library with you wherever you go for a yeah. half of a pound, it fits in one pocket. Of course, uh, you can say that about music but, too. But yeah. but any anyway, back Let's to get back, back to Sanchia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I will say like I I enjoyed the like the slave freedom internal conflict she had. It was more the um, the scribing the the side effects of her of her scribing. Uh, that conflict I felt was one of the things that defined her character uh -huh. and then it was just totally ripped away and so she's she feels like a like a completely different character now in a lot of ways because she doesn't have but like 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 it wasn't earned growth it was just given to her I don't know I would I would argue that like see that 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 particular aspect of her personality is kind of, it's a weakness. It presents a weakness to her, or at least she interprets it as a weakness. And is one truly defined by their weakness or by their strengths? I don't know. I felt like this was a burden that she had to shed all along, and that I, I'm I'm kind of glad that we got something in that way in book one, or else it would have felt to me this entire without that this entire book would have felt kind of less important. Because I mean, there's still just so much left to, to uncover. I felt like we needed something big. Some some pivotal change in Sanchez's life, and I think I think this was a good way to do it. I mean, fair enough. I agree I, to disagree. I disagree. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. fine. That's but, exactly uh, why we make podcasts like this. You you, you yeah. offer differing opinions. Exactly. And I'd like to just point out that uh, the books we've disagreed the most on have been the brand new books that neither of us have ever read before. <laughs> yeah, which is good. Well, I mean. If we disagreed so much about Brandon Sanderson, we might not have vibed so well up until. Oh this yeah, point, or, right? or, or, so, or the Wheel of exactly, Time or whatever. Exactly, the Wheel of Time music and stuff. Halo, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, you know, it's uh, it's uh, there's definitely like a character arc. You know, we we have a conclusion with Sanchia with with her internal conflicts. I just don't really feel like one of those conclusions was earned. Okay, and that's, oh. that's my my issue. Ah, okay. You you feel like it was it was kind of just it came and went non consequentially. She didn't really have to change herself so much as she just had this removed for her. Yes. Okay, I agree with that actually. You know what? Now that you mentioned that, I mean, uh, Valeria was kind of like a cheat card in that moment, wasn't she? But I don't know. But, Going forward, so with Sanchez's new abilities, I'm just so excited about what's going to happen with those. There's so much more that she can do. You said you preferred Sanchez in the first half of the book. I vastly mm -hmm. preferred her in the second half of the book. Really? If only because 
I mean, it's not only because, but if only because, in itself would be enough reason with how much potential she has going forward with a lot of the new abilities she's acquired and a lot of the weaknesses she's had removed. The, the, the ball and chain has been cut, proverbially speaking. Yeah, I, I mean, I am not going to deny the cool factor yeah. has been ratcheted up. And then maybe mean, that's all it takes to please me, I'll admit that. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and I will say my hope for Sanchia going forward, that like, if we're going to have this internal conflict uh, renewed, perhaps, it's that Valeria is the one who edited her, right? Ooh. And Valeria has some antagonistic Ooh. tendencies Dang, where hadn't... we're left at the end of the book. She could further edit Sanchia. Dang, I hadn't considered that. So, that's my hope. <laughs> as much as it's going to suck if she does... That's my hope. Do you think Sanchia could return the favor? Could fire back, perhaps, well, if she gets good enough? She, she is does? an editor. She is an editor, right? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, she was created... I mean, she. we found out later in the book, of course, that this mysterious black figure in all this cloth and all, this, all these, you know, things was perhaps involved in her creation. Or was it Gregor's creation? I think it was Gregor's oh, creation. Oh, Gregor's actually. creation. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I was definitely. going off on a misled tangent there. But, you know, I mean, they he, this 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 figure that you are predicting to be Cressides the Great, and that I might be tempted to actually jump on that bandwagon, <laughs> was involved with the scribing of humans might, you know, there, there might, might be another hidden secret there. Maybe he had a mm -hmm. reason for that. I'm assuming he had a reason oh, for oh, that, yeah, but yeah. who knows what that reason could be. I don't um, think she's as helpless. Shall, shall we use this as a jumping off point and go into uh, uh, Gregor? Boom. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess I'll start us off. And I'll start off by saying it looks like we had a couple of predictions about Senor Gregor that came true, <laughs> eh? It does indeed he look is, that way. <coughs> pardon me. He is a scribed human as well. Bingo. Ding, ding. And he's effectively immortal. And his mother and, knows that. And she's behind and, it all. Sorry, go ahead. And it's an occidental scribing. Yes, yes. As I as I predicted. Yeah. You know. <laughs> like like our <laughs> all of our predictions about Gregor at the end of last episode came like exactly true. <laughs> yep. And I, I'm just I I'm torn on whether I, I think the book is less for it or we are just really, really badass. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like a lot yeah, of people could have got our, that. Our, our listeners, least, you know, a lot of comments on our uh, talk to could have got that. Yeah, comments on our posts, you know, on on Facebook and you know, on, in the Yinking Out Loud Facebook group, and and let us know what you, what you thought about that. Uh, if you predicted what was going on with Gregor, or, or if you were surprised by it, or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm really curious to see if if this is a common thing with Foundry side <laughs> if. if if these surprises are just as obvious as, you know, like the Sachi and Berenice thing and, and Ophelia and, and Gregor and the scribings and uh, um, uh, mm -hmm. the other one, um, I don't actually, I don't remember if we mentioned it or not, but that Clef was Chrysides' wand. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, like that was super obvious, right? Right, like it, it was like, it was, I mean, I, I, Listen to me stuttering, Jesus Christ! At the one of my <laughs> predictions at the end of the last episode was that uh, okay, yeah. we had seen the wand and it's just in disguise. And in that moment, I was wondering, do I say it's Clef? But I think you actually just expounded upon that before I even did. So, yeah, I mean, we haven't listened back on our you know no, the yeah. editing isn't done yet on that episode, so I I don't remember exactly what all the predictions were. But yeah. I, I 
my vague memory is that we just like nailed everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But um, you so. know, that said, since we're still on Gregor's character, I yeah, will yeah. say I was actually pretty disappointed with his treatment for the latter half of this book. He's just sort of like uh, I don't I don't want to say non consequential because he does con- he, he convinces Sanchia to make the strike on the mountain. But after that, he just spends most of the narrative kind of, for lack of a better term, trapped inside his the prison of his own body. And yes. it was cool to see him Hulk smashing his way into the campo. But I, I just, I really, I felt really cheated out of the fight that I wanted to see in this character. And I don't know. I suppose what I was expecting was something more along the lines of a gathering of his continually failed militia and a frontal, a full frontal assault on the campo in order to save Sancia. Um, that's oh, that what I was been... kind of expecting, yeah. and then finally his—he kind of gets to prove to his mother, "Look, my militia, the, this thing that we stand for, is is legitimate, and we can accomplish something when we really, really try." But I suppose if he had, if that had happened, and he had done that, maybe it would have led to a complicated sort of romance. Though I don't know, um, but I don't know. It just—it didn't—it did not go the direction I expected it to. I felt like I just liked that character so much I hated seeing him a prisoner for that, that entire second half despite how cool it was yeah and so to bring this into like the writing language sure the problem with Gregor in the second half of this book is that he's utterly robbed of agency yeah absolutely he he's built up to have this this character arc and this conflict where Again, he's working to actualized yes He's working to, you know, make a difference in the city, like a civic duty kind of thing. And then in the second half of this book, it's that whole plot thread is just chopped in half and stops. Well, and it's just he's suspended, and he's a perhaps. Tool. He might still further yeah, it in yeah. the future. I, well, I, I imagine he will, but but that's an unfulfilled character arc. He doesn't have a full character. Oh, definitely. Book. Oh, definitely. Like, he just loses agency for the last whatever, like 180 pages of the book, uh-huh. and that's that's a problem for me. Yeah. You know, like especially because he's such a likable character. I was gonna say he I was mean, my he's... favorite character going, but no, he was my second favorite character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I, I will say again, the cool factor is there. Mm-hmm. This this Lorica, the like the shadow assassin Lorica, where he's got like the ridiculous, you know, like, extending polearm, and, yeah. like, the shield, the shield that shoots Espringol, projectiles and stuff. And, yeah, combo, yeah. and, Jumping like, 30 and, feet in the air, that was, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, like, the, the cool factor was definitely ramped up in the second half of this book, but, like, with Sanchia, uh, but, but even more so than Sanchia, I, I was not satisfied with his character arc. No, definitely. His character arc just stopped. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Um, and he just be, yeah, at one point he just stopped becoming a character and became a device, a narrative device. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, and uh, again, like I have hope. I I really want him to uh, to be brought into the fold with this new Foundry Side Limited, you know, merchant house. Uh, yeah. I want him to have more of an opportunity to work on his like civic police. Uh, reforming the the political structure, of the government of Tavan. I, I I think there's potential going forward for him, but yeah, his character arc in the second half of this book fell flat. I want to make a pseudo prediction going forward before we get off of Gregor and before I forget mm, it. Okay, I do think that there is still some uh, some potential 
for a love triangle, if that's the phrase you want to use between he, Berenice, and Sancho. But I think that's only because, not like they've been vibing at all up until this point, not like Sanchia <laughs> and Berenice have been, clearly, but because of, of what they have in common, and that is the fact that they are both scribed humans, he and Sanchia, and they are both scribed with Occidental symbols. And I think there's a lot of potential, narrative potential, for, for, for Bennett to explore perhaps a journey, like a, like a quest for those two to go on to find out answers and, and in doing so, encounter a lot of scenarios and situations where they will grow closer together. I think that's possible going forward. I'm going to go ahead and say they will not be romantically involved. Okay. You're, okay. Um, but, but I agree with everything else you just said there. They might not be I romantically think... involved, but they, it might give Sancha some doubts until she decides on Berenice. I don't think for a moment she will ever end up with oh. with Gregor, but I think it will kind of present some confusion when she finds out how much they have in common. And I don't really see Gregor going anywhere else except into that into that territory himself and being rejected. Unfortunately, that's what I think. Maybe so. So you you think Sancha is bisexual? Yeah. I think she could be. Um, okay. I think there's a chance, definitely a good chance that she is. I mean, we, we, we know for a fact that she obviously does have a, a very clear interest in Berenice. She expresses that <laughs> several times. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very clearly. And, and of course, Ber- uh, Berenice reciprocates that. But at the same time, the, the, the amount that they have in common, not she and Berenice, but she and Gregor, and the fact that they are both scribed human beings, they will either become, well, no, they will become, like, close to best friends, I think, just because of how much they have in common. But I ultimately assume, of course, that I mean, Sancia and Berenice is, is the clear way to go. I mean... I, I I just see it as like, I I don't think there's the need to make any kind of romantic in, romantic interest a, a part of the relationship growing between them, like sure, yes, sure, it could, yeah. yes, they're both scribed humans. Yes, they they will have this eventual relationship growing closer together, and will understand each other in ways that other people can't. Yeah, but I I don't see, I just don't see any yeah. precursor for romance there. And and I I think I want to just point again that the, I I did say you know this is a pseudo prediction I I didn't give this any thought this was an impulsive prediction that I just made here um, not oh, like sure, the, the, sure. the predictions that I have later for the episode where I've I have at least had a few days to give them some thought so yeah okay are we uh, um, done with Gregor or do you have more that you want to uh, discuss uh, the only thing I have left with Gregor is that um, he like as much as he was robbed of agency in the second half of this book uh, and, and his character arc was cut short um, he is set up for a more compelling character arc in the second because he still has this whole like police force reform revolution possibly uh, conflict ahead of him but now he has a direct and immediate conflict with his mother hmm. yeah and and there's a lot of potential there. I, I think Ophelia was one of the better, like, secondary characters in this book. Yeah, I she's, agree. She's I agree. compelling. She She's, um, I'm not going to say mysterious, but she's good at obfuscation. Um, it's hard to get a handle on her. Uh, that was one of those things that uh, maybe landed a little better with me. 
was the gradual reveal of what exactly Ophelia is up to. Was it? Uh, I mean, so, I don't know. I kind of, I, I, I kind of saw that coming. Like as soon as she was telling Gregor, she's like, "I knew you were alive." You know. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I know you're not going to die. And I was like, well, oh, "Okay, so she's behind this. She's scribing humans. She's she knows that he's immortal." Uh, but that you're, wasn't are you the to her whole. With... I'm saying her whole motivation. We got bits and pieces strewn throughout the book with her, and in motivation a pretty, for what? Sorry. Uh. That she's working with a hierophant. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought you were talking about her motivation for scribing humans and the fact that she's created one. I was like, that's no, pretty no, obvious. That's she just, lost her husband that's and just son. a small piece of oh, okay. it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got you. So, um, yeah, so, like, Ophelia is kind of my offshoot of Gregor. Like, I, I'm very interested in what she's up to. I think she's going to be a fantastic antagonist going forward. Um, I think she's immediately more compelling than either Tomas or Estelle. Were really, in this book. yeah. Really, I I agree with one of those names. I disagree with the other. You disagree with Estelle? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, we okay. actually still have a lot of characters. To go. I have points here: Orso, Berenice, Estelle, Ziani, oh, oh, Clef, no. Valeria. Holy crap! No, this is going to be a little bit of a longer. It episode. might be, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, who do you want to move on to next, my man? Well, let's talk about Estelle. All right, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a good jumping-off point. Yeah. Uh, I will start off by saying, and this is uh, this is something I actually wrote down word for word in my notes. I wrote, "Damn, Estelle knows how to make an entrance," and I'll, I'll justify that here. Those little scribed pieces sound horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I now I, I've had big drops of liquid steel drop into my boot on occasion, and it sucks to the max. I mean, generally speaking, since the boots are tied on so well to prevent exactly that from happening. It, it means that when the hot steel does find its way in there, there's not much to be done about it besides just kind of screaming and stamping my foot and trying to rub it out. I can't imagine what it would be like to have that same drop of hot steel moving through my body and eating the lining around my heart. I was like, yeah. oh, just wow. This is a cold bitch. She is cold. Um, and, you know, last episode, we discussed a bit of our frustration, you and I, Drew, that there appeared to be no particular reason in this society, like in, in Tavon, that, that, that has suddenly and inexplicably decided that women can't work as scribers. Mm-hmm. You know, we were really hoping it was not just an idle sort of pandering sort of political commentary that, in all honesty, in my opinion, seems to be increasing in prevalence with a lot of modern young adult and epic fantasy sci-fi. But thankfully, it seems that Bennett had his reasons. And that it must have been incredibly frustrating for a woman like Estelle with such intelligence and creativity and sheer drive to be just dismissed and for lack of a better term imprisoned throughout her life i mean this restriction on women in tavani society turned out to have a direct tie to the identity and the struggles of our hidden antagonist and it provided the kind of sympathy or i don't know justification if you want to say for an antagonist that i feel we really really lacked with her husband you know thomas ziani Okay, so this is where we diverge on Estelle. Really? Because, yes, so that, like, um, denial of access to scribing for women Mm -hmm. is the motivation behind Estelle. Yeah. Right? Ostensibly, yeah. But we still didn't get any reason for why women are just suddenly 
banned from Scrap. No, 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 no. You're right. We didn't get a reason for that. We just so I, it just, ultimately it was a narrative our, device. It was just Bennett needed a reason. Yeah, and for that's a problem. Really? That's a problem for me ah. because like it, there's no there's no logical explanation for why our ultimate villain here is doing the thing she does, and especially so because she is doing horrific things. And and like just like even even if had there had been a good reason for like a good in world reason so to speak for like the uh, like uh, ostracization of women among the scribers. Like, even then, I still would not have bought Estelle's, like, motivations here. Like, like she's like, oh, my dad didn't believe in me, so I'm gonna f***ing no, murder 10,000 people. She was a genius in her art, and she was denied the, 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 the materials she needed to fu to express it. So she she's just trapped. gonna murder 10,000 people. She was trapped. I don't in buy that. her eyes, she might That's not, she such might not see it as murdering. She might, she's, she's no, trying to she absorb did. them. She did, because we yeah, actually yeah, got, the end she got a that. point of view from her where yeah. she's like, she's like, she knows what she's doing. But, but oh, so I'm not saying her, she's a her good explanations, person. <laughs> no, but, but the fact that he writes her as aware of what she's doing and she tries to rationalize it in the context of this whole, I was denied my right, like, Ah, uh, oh, that did not work for me. That did know. not work for me. You see, and I understand what you're saying. You're absolutely right in the fact that that, despite the fact it presented a very, very good, or at least you know, justification if she wants to put it that way for for her actions, we still didn't have a reason, a concrete reason why this society is as sexist as it is. But I just I think the fact that she had that motivation, I definitely don't want to say it redeemed her at all. But it, 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 it gave her a little more dimension than it did. For example, I, I guess my main reason that I'm kind of arguing, I don't want to say arguing, <laughs> arguing for Estelle, but why I found her, you know, so uh, compelling as I did was simply because of her juxtaposition with her husband. Because he was a character who was also bad, clearly an, an antagonist, but had no goddamn reason to be as much of an asshole as he was. He had so, no reason for that. And so I guess comparing so Tomas, the two, I guess with the context, Estelle versus Zayani, I kind of, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, so Tomas, he is like, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about our, our uh, you know, ability to insert um, politically and culturally uh, exigent themes exigent, and things. Yes. Uh, Tomas is like the corrupt excess CEO of of our world today. Yeah, but that... I mean, like, that's like, just so plain, though. That there's, there's oh, oh, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not disputing that. So I'm, I'm saying, again, I thought Tomas and Estelle were both, like, kind of underwhelming. No. That's why I think Ophelia is so much more interesting going forward. Estelle had so much more reason. If, even if it's but a, there even was if it's no reason behind reason. her reason. Yeah, exactly. That, I guess that's where we diverge. For me, it's enough for a character. At least it makes a character more compelling when they have a reason, regardless as to the validity of that reason, when they still have to rationalize. I mean, uh, Tomas Zayani was just like, hey, everybody, I'm an asshole. Watch watch me do. Watch me do what assholes do. See? Hey, in case you forgot how much of an asshole I am, let me remind you about how much of an asshole I am. I just, there was, he was a one-dimensional character with one purpose, and that was to show how much of an asshole he was. With his wife, she at least had a reason. She was imprisoned by this asshole. 
She was she was constricted by society. She she was a genius in her art who was denied the materials to express that art. I I just I don't know. With Estelle, I found like obviously terrible person, terrible terrible person. Her entire reasoning completely corrupt, non-valid. But she was still a more to me a more compelling character than her husband was simply because she had reason despite whether or not it was valid. See. There, I disagree. Yeah, I can see. I can see. Um, I just heard that. Tomas, and I went, uh, what the hell? Am so, I Tomas, we you know we will bring it back to our first episode, right? The beer I brought was okay. called Avarice. Okay. Okay. It was this unchecked greed that is representative mm. of the culture of Tavan, and Tomas is the result of that. He there was a reason why he is the man he is, and his whole thing. You you just was that like, Oh, I'm an asshole because. It's it's it, an inherently corrupt, money-oriented culture, and he is the ultimate representation of somebody and raised in that society. There is a reason behind the way he developed as a human being. And now, so you said like, oh, he's just an asshole to be an asshole. I say no, he's a businessman, and that was driven home where he's like, these creatives. You know, like, oh, all you scribers are so dumb and, and out there. Like, no, he's like, I'm, I'm all about the bottom line. I'm cold-blooded. I'm going to make but money. Does he also I'm going to be, be successful. Does he also have to be uh, a rapist? Does he also have to be, oh. like, all these other things that, that, that have nothing to do with his mercantile efforts and just because of his personality? I'm not talking about that. Well, I'm talking I am. about his motivations. Those aren't his motivations. I'm talking no, about his motivations no, 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 no. But versus his Estelle's motivations. Character, I don't know. I just I'm talking purely about motivations here, between Tomas so and Estelle. So you think Tomas and Estelle had equally valid, if or no? I, I think Tomas had a had a, had a more valid motivations than Estelle because at its root, I could Estelle, not disagree with like, that anymore. So Estelle, like, had there been a reason for the sexism in Tavan, in this culture, yes, her motivations would have been way more But because there was no reason, her motivations were there not There was no reason. The, the only reason for it was Robert Jackson Bennett decided it was going to be this way. Okay, I think I figured out what we're arguing. I think we're arguing two different things. I think you're arguing about how well-written of a character she is. I'm just talking about yes. whether she can be considered good or bad to the reader's moral point. No, oh, oh, that's not at all what I'm going for. Okay. I'm just well, saying, like... All right, that makes more sense now. Okay. <laughs> but, but to tie this all back together, this is why I think Ophelia Dandolo is so much more compelling of a villain or an antagonist, yeah, I she has, she does than either Tomas or Estelle. Yeah, no, I will agree that so. <laughs> Ophelia still has a more grounded, uh, uh, tangible reason, and that is to protect her son because she's lost yeah. her, her husband. She's lost her other son. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah, and this yeah, yeah. mystic, deific figure <laughs> appears and offers you the opportunity to turn one of your children immortal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. no, I, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we pretty much got a lot of my 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 character points about uh, Tomas Zayani out of the way too. Uh, Let's talk about Orso. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or oh hey yes Orso my man Orso Ignacio. Okay. So t for me, he continued to shine like a gem through the entire second part of our read. He's such a brilliant guy, and he's got such a foul mouth. You know, when he's explaining his idea about twinning the empty box to believe that it holds a lexicon with substitute definitions he asked 
and I, he was asked, uh, no, he was asked, sorry, by either Claudia or, or, or Giovanni, how are we supposed to do this exactly? And then he just goes, well, you two aren't doing shit, really. I'm doing the hard bit. You know, in, in little moments like these again and again are what make me really like this guy. What about you? Okay, so I just got done complaining about the character arcs of Satya and Gregor. <laughs> okay. Orso I know is the going. flip side of that. Yes. He had the character arc in the second half of this book. He was maybe the biggest redeeming factor in character development over the last, what, 180, so 190 agreed. pages of Founders. So agreed. Absolutely. Like, the, it, it, it was such a deftly done little mystery where he... He asks uh, Giovanni and uh, Claudia, he's like, how many scrappers do you have? How many are loyal to you? Oh, about a dozen? That's enough. All right, <laughs> take some of my money. And then you never hear again about what happened. And then it all comes to fruition during the trial at the end yeah. where he's just, he's just like chilling there in the cage. He's like, yeah, this is a joke. He's like, you, so you guys don't even know. Confident. He's just yeah. there with his shit-eating grin. He's so... Like, oh, that him. was some... Uh, without spoiling anything, that was some Locke Lamora level manipulation. No shit. Interesting. Good to know. Like going people, people who've read Republic of Thieves, the third Gentleman Bastards book, know what I'm talking about. There, like this, this is some, uh, this is some, not only brilliant character decision making, but brilliant writing to obscure the goals of these maneuvers. So we see the decisions being made, we know the materials, but we, like, you'd, you'd have to be so, so astute to figure out where all of these pieces come together. And this is one of those twists that I felt worked in this book. Okay. It was, it was like, it made sense, right? There was so much groundwork laid out early on that, like, yeah, Orso's got tons of money. Like, he's rich enough. He has his own, like, friggin' mansion, palatial estate. You know, he's uh, he's not especially loyal to uh, the Dandolos. He has these ties back to the um, the Condianos. Like, he's, he's more dedicated to scribing than yeah, anything yeah. else. And... And he's, over the course of this book, developing all these new technologies that he's like, I could make money off of this, you know? And yep. so it makes sense that at the end, he found his own house. <laughs> yeah. Like... Yeah. To it, like, like I, I don't know, but, but the... In effect... Um, dang it, like, I don't want to spoil anything. In, in effect, the whole scene where he talks to, to Giovanni and Claudia about the scrappers and says, I'll give you some of my money you gotta go do this and we don't know what it is yeah I thought that was a that was part of the plan with the assault on the mountain myself I was like what right the heck yeah, yeah. yeah but that reminds me forcibly of a key maneuver in Republic of Thieves uh, that Locke pulls off regarding um, a ship and some like uh, ancestral caskets and that's all I'll say okay Okay, well, I'll piggyback on that point. Sorry, go. Were you, it so, like you wanted to finish that point. Well, well basically, I'm, I'm, I'm just like everything that Bennett 
didn't manage to hit home with other characters and other aspects of this book, he did with Orso's plotline and Orso's character arc. So, like, when I walk out of, you know, this book, so to speak, Orso and Berenice are my favorite characters. Yeah. Because they're the two who were most uh, adequately handled, the most compelling going forward, like... I, I don't know. I, mm. I I know they're secondary characters here. We we barely get any points of view from them, but they were done the best. Hmm. Well, I'll say that coming out of episode one, I feel like I made very clear that Orso Ignacio was hands down my favorite character, and I kind of feel <laughs> you know validated in the fact that he got such a, a great you know character arc. Now, piggyback off that last point that you just made um, with with. with Orso Ignacio, he is a man who you are given a million reasons to hate, and he only gives you a million reasons in return to love. I mean, that's just, that's how I feel yeah. about Orso Ignacio. He's such Ooh, a, like I, I said like earlier earlier in this podcast, like I said, he's such a brilliant guy. He's got such a foul mouth, and and I, he just to me he kind of stole every single scene that he was in. And he wasn't in a lot, you know, he wasn't a main character, he was definitely a tertiary character, but he was somebody who I always returned to and said, oh, yes, I'm going to get a little more, you know, a little more humor out of this guy. You know, there was, there was a moment, and, ju- and, you know, to piggyback off that last point that you just made about that last kind of political maneuver of his, and I, I'm quoting from a text here, Orso grinned deliriously and tapped the side of his head. I don't know what it is about mortal panic, he said. But it keeps giving me the best scrumming ideas. I thought <laughs> that was such a winner of a line. And then, of course, we found out in the last pages of the book, this particular idea turned out to be a damned good one, after all. You know, the founding of his own house, you know, Foundryside Limited. His entire demeanor during that, that last uh, that trial that we got at the end. You know, I loved, loved loved the ending scene where, where he's presumably about to be executed and then he turns it all around on Ophelia Dandolo's head the, the, that whole scene had to be grinning like an idiot it was so satisfying to see someone like Ophelia Dandolo get so salty over it oh and yeah her helpless oh, frustration yeah. Drew her helpless frustration was like a strawberry daiquiri on a hot summer day I was just sitting there sipping it in like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is it. This is what I came here the, for. It was the one line, the one line where where you know she's reading off his sentence and he just interrupts her. He's like, "Let me guess, Harper." Yep. And she's like, <laughs> "You were yep. sentenced to death by Harpering," and he's just like, rolls his eyes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he he was a man somehow so in control. Uh, it, it was just. Yeah. yeah. Everything about oh, Orso yeah. Ignacio, the the fact that his character started in the place that it did and ended in the place that it did, what a gem of a character! And, and going forward, I mean, I'm just he, I still hands down my favorite character, my my favorite character, hands down. Nice, nice. Yeah. So I mean, and since we're just talking about Orso, you want to move on to Berenice? Yeah, I don't have a ton to say about her other than that. You know, she is a secondary character, so, you know, there wasn't a ton to do with her. Uh, but what there was, was handled well. Uh, you know, she she had this uh, established personality, kind of, like, passivity. 
you know, but competitive, competitive. Wow, <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling today, Is man. Is it competitive? <laughs> <laughs> Competent. <laughs> oh, that was good. Oh man, uh, yeah. So she has this like competence uh, to her that you know we talked about in the last episode that kind of reminded us of like what was that? Uh, Steris from Miss Bernera too. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, making yeah. that connection. But um, but in this half, it becomes more of a character conflict where it's like she she wants to establish a relationship, so she needs to overcome that passivity and make a move so to speak because Sanchi is sure is yeah. going to do that like yeah. you know and uh yeah so so we get that i mean it was a satisfying mini little character arc that she got uh, uh she remained amusing on the page you know i was entertained anytime she was in a scene i think she set up for bigger and better things going forward with uh foundry side limited and yeah yeah well, Berenice, and, and same as you said, I don't really have a ton to talk about with Berenice. You know, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get as much Berenice in the second half because I did enjoy reading every scene that she was in. But the scenes that she was included in, they did shine as well. And it, it, I loved when it was <laughs> when it was time for her to step up to the plate and construct new definitions for the lexicon and repair the gravity rigs. That was awesome, because yeah. it was pretty satisfying to see her straight up tell Orso Ignacio. She was like, look, I, I'm doing this, sir. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm faster better than you. Than you. Yeah, like, yeah. that's just how it goes. <laughs> and I also got a good laugh when she disguised her need to inform Sanchia about the dangers, the, the dangers, listen to me, about the dangers <laughs> of the gravity rig under, the, under the, the kind of disguise of needing to ask her a question. And then once the information was across, she just goes... I actually don't have a question. I just wanted to tell you this without you immediately panicking. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she stole that whole that whole scene, didn't she? Yeah, I agree. That was that was fantastic yeah. there. Um, yeah, I, I'm very excited to see where Berenice goes. Oh yeah, I did. Uh, going forward, I definitely ship Berenice Sanchez. Def like that, of course. Oh, for sure. Yeah, unquestionably. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. That's pretty much everything um, I had about Berenice. Uh. We, we don't really have uh, any other major characters left. Well, I, um, I have a few a few points about Clef and Valeria to make. Okay, um, all right. I'll start with Clef. I, I just say, with Clef, it's really only one point. And I, and, uh, I, I want to say poor Clef, really. You know, I started yeah. <laughs> feeling pretty sympathetic when he, was, when he was starting to get overwhelmed by revelation after revelation about himself. You know, once the mountain revealed that in the old Gothian language... You know, the, the word for key was one letter off from wand, you know. And then the mountain starts going on to list a whole slew of suspiciously familiar things that the wand of Cressides was supposed to, you know, supposedly able to do. Yep. You know, and Clef, naturally, he starts to crack. Sancha's confused. She's asking him about it. She's like, did you know that? And he just, he clearly go. you know, he's frustrated. He starts yelling at her. He goes, I don't know, all right, I don't know. You know, that, that's enough goddamn questions. I think it's a, it was enough goddamn speculation, is what he said. And yeah. I was really starting to feel for the guy. Just to have your whole world kind of like upended on itself like that. This many, yeah. I mean, this many revelations in, in that quick of a succession. Just, I really started to pity Clef. Um, and, of course, seeing his treatment throughout the rest of the book. You know, the, the final scene there with, with Sanchia, you know, 
she managed to, to speak to the man who was Clef. <clears throat> and I was, I just, I my heart broke for that man. I was like, God damn, he just, uh, apparently he just got, no, you know, nothing redeeming. He just, he, he got the shitty end of the stick again and again and again. And I, I hope going forward, <laughs> even though I can't see how that he, he you know, he gets what he deserves and he, he gets to, 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 to be himself and do what he loves. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I'm really, really bummed out that he's effectively, for lack of a better word, dead by the end of this book. And He's uh, for sure coming back, though. He's got to be, right? Like, he has to be. Yeah, yeah. There, I just, there's I no way that's... Yeah. I just don't see him coming back <laughs> with the memories that he acquired with his relationship with Sanchia and, and, and having yeah. that bond with somebody. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of bummed out for Clef. Yes, I, yeah, I'll agree with you there. And uh, my only other character here, uh, Valeria. I want to say that my first... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my first impression of Valeria, you know, besides straight-up goosebumps, I mean, this bitch gave me the heebie-jeebies, um, was, a, you know, of course, was, oh, we've met our first official Hierophant. You know, the way she can play with people's minds the, and make them think they're awake when they're sleeping or, you know, vice versa, or you know, to communicate that brazen, unblinking stare. I was just like, creepy. Of course, we find out that she's a she's a construct. She's a creation. Mm-hmm. Um, but and uh, also, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Drew, just just personally, the name Valeria. What'd you think? Just just so the aesthetic of of the name Valeria. What did you think of that? You're like you haven't read this yet, but the first thing I think of is Gene Wolf, Book of the New Sun. Really. Uh, there is a character named Valeria. Oh in wow! That, who is uh, like interestingly important to it? Um, she's not always present, uh, but she has, in her own way, a pretty major impact on the story, especially in Earth of the New Sun, the uh, like the sequel. Uh, Interesting. The sequel novel. Um, and and I I couldn't ever really get around that. <laughs> okay. Well, um, mm. yeah. But but I will say that opening scene. It was immediately it was like oh, awesome! Like we got something helping. And then the more she talked, the more I was like, I do not trust her. Yeah. I do okay, not so trust her. <laughs> I do not trust her. <laughs> like and going next. And I was again. This I feel like this was supposed to be a little bit of a twist at the end with the revelation of what she is. And I was like, no, like that makes total sense. Like, I, of course that's what, what her deal is. Like she's like, yeah, I don't know. But, uh, and this is maybe my biggest problem with the second half of the book was that one scene with, uh, Sanchia on the table, you know, like latched down talking with Valeria. There are two things going on in this scene. The conversation with her, where Valeria is, in my mind, clearly more and more and more obviously untrustworthy. (laughs) And the Bonds clearly telling Sanchia it's a password. Okay. And it took Sanchia so friggin' long (laughs) to figure out that it wasn't like 
breathing on the thing. Do you think it took Sanchia so long, perhaps because Bennett needed that one moment of boom when 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 the climax? Yes. Hit? Yeah, I think that's I exactly that. it. Yeah. yeah, and and so this is this is like uh, going to the core of my issues with this book is that there are things that happen for no really good reason except the author wanted it to happen. Yeah. Or the author needed it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. So, and you know, this goes back to my argument about Estelle's motivations. This goes, you know, goes to the scene, again, tied to Estelle. If Sanchia was even remotely intelligent for, like, this one five-minute span, she would have figured out right away, oh, it's, of course, like, it's breath, but not exactly breath. And there are, like, all these other things tying. It's like, oh, duh, you have to talk a word at it. Like, well, duh! You know, and, <laughs> and so that needed to happen so that Estelle could come in and do her, like, you know, burrowing metallic worm thing and and kill all the guys and have this, like, gravity plate de- horrific death for Tomas. Like, like, it was very obvious the moments in this book where Bennett was like, I want this to happen, but it, it wouldn't happen unless I yeah. fiddle with things. Huh. Well, I mean, I'll, uh, well, sorry, were, were you uh, done your point there? Can I continue? Yeah, yeah I'm sweet, done. Sweet, So I'll start off by saying that the, uh, what I started with, you know, asking you specifically about the aesthetic of the name Valeria, you know, to okay. me it was very, I want to say cliche, maybe a little on the, maybe a little on the side of cringy, and that's just because I was thinking myself, I was thinking about a song of ice and fire, Valeria, Valerian steel. Uh, granted, it's spelled slightly different. In oh song yeah, of ice I was going to say, I never even thought of that. But you know. It just to me it, it kind of feels like a pretty standard kind of epic fantasy. I need a cool sounding name, Valyrian. You know. Uh, can I? Can I? No, go so ahead, dude. Did you listen to the audiobook for I, that scene? In 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 Foundryside? No, I didn't. So I pronounce that Valeria. Valeria. Not Valeria. Yeah, which is very very similar, but I see how you're you're distinguishing the e from the y. So so I never. It, never at all really? associated like old Valyria in A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm. See, to me, the E is kind of interchangeable with the Y depending on like the context. I don't know. For I just, I could not stop thinking of Valyrian Steel while I was reading her name Valeria. And I was like, ah, huh. I don't know. But again, I, I mean, I myself have only read book one and two of A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, like, I don't, you know, that's just kind of a quick impression that I had and it kept reminding me of it. But um, I don't know. That's just one thing huh. that I that I could not get out of my head as I was reading Valeria's character. But sorry, listen to me doing it again. Valeria, I don't know. But um, there, yeah. there there was another moment that I want to draw to the forefront here when Valeria explains to Sancha that she can turn off her abilities as well as you know yeah. how to resist the Imperiad. You know, in that moment, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I started to trust her despite my ever-increasing frustration with the continued lectures on the lore. But when she said, and, and I quote, when she said, and will you unlock my casings, confirmed, I stopped and I went, wait, hang on, hold up, back up just a sec, Sancia, maybe we should think about this. 
But <clears throat> I suppose you know, looking at it in, in hindsight, Satya didn't really have much of a uh, much, much much of a choice. Eh? She she didn't, but but still, like she should have yeah. known. And I think that's like... a that's a point in Bennett's favor. I mean, if Satya had been in any state besides absolute desperation and blundered on ahead, I would have resented her for that because it was pretty clear that. Valeria is something that you should probably consider before you release it. Um, but she was, but I think Bennett managed to place her in a situation where she had absolutely no choice. So I, I, I know, I, I, I forgave him for it. So my only issue with that is that it wasn't until much later that Sanchia released Valeria. Yeah. Well, um, that was like literally and, the whole climax of the book. That was the point. That yeah, was, that's what yeah, Satya yeah. would had but, infiltrated but the But in that to moment, do. like like she had plenty of time to consider that interaction and realize like maybe she's not totally trustworthy. But <laughs> what, she what even other choice did she have? That. She needed to stop. Well, no, the no, I'm I'm not saying that she had another choice. I'm saying she didn't even like. Oh. Consider that she Valeria could be antagonistic. She didn't realize that this was the lesser of two evils. She just thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Like. And I don't know. May, maybe I'm giving Sanchia too much credit. Maybe I'm giving like a slave girl turned street urchin. Yeah. Turned I think thief. context of the scene of like, what was happening kind of <laughs> is really important here. She couldn't stop and think about this logically. Like she's she's not educated. She's not like, you know a. A big thinker or anything, so you know, may, maybe like there is somebody who just would not have put that together, but uh, but I I, I just want to like finish since we're on like Valyria and and the Occidentals. Sure, and all sure, that, yeah. Um, I want to finish on this revelation at the end of the book of the Dark Prophet, right? You know, this the. Probably Grisini's the <laughs> yeah. moth guy, I'm whatever you want to call at it. A point that I was going to say after this about that. He guy was uh, uh, again not surprising to me. Okay, the moths I thought were so heavy-handed. Yeah, like yes. every the way single they, they time appeared in every scene that that Ophelia was in. Yeah, yeah, like it. It, it was no surprise at all to me that that they were, like, controlled or part of some malevolent entity. They were more than just moths. Yeah, like, it, it wasn't like, oh, Campo Dandolo has a moth infestation. I was yeah. like, he was definitely like, of didn't course that's not the case. He definitely didn't handle it as subtly as Brandon Sanderson handled the things or some yeah, very specific yeah. to, to say To say no more of that. To say no more of that. Yeah. Yeah, we we we'll we'll bleep those out. Yeah, we'll bleep that out. No problem. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, you know, it, it was it was still cool to see that at the end. Um, I I'm excited to see where that plot line goes. As I said, I mean, Ophelia is really compelling to me going forward because hmm. she has like a really emotionally based motivation. And that makes her very open to manipulation from this, you know, uh, presumably interesting Occidental entity. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's my last character thought. 
but do we want to talk about just like you know overall like impression? Yeah, ratings? yeah. I have a I have a couple of miscellaneous points I want to get out of the way. A couple of predictions I want to like official predictions yeah. I want to get out of the way, and then I'll have my my, my conclusion here. Um, I want to say I was blown away by uh, by the scene where the mountain started talking to Sanchia. I mean that revelation came unexpectedly and eerily to me personally. I mean I, I realized the mountain would probably, as Orso Ignacio said earlier, it would probably be on to Sanchia eventually, and I, I figured she would just start coming across locked doors. She would start coming across mm-hmm. obstacles. I didn't expect that the mountain would have a personality and that it would actually directly speak to her, and it would be so soon into her, you know. Uh, heist, for lack of a better word. So yeah. I thought that was it, that was handled very well. It was very eerie, very unexpected, as I said. Um, gave me chills. So excellent scene, that one. And I want to draw back to an earlier discussion, Drew, you and I had about uh, during our episodes about the the Rune Lords. Actually. Oh. And this is particularly during our Layer of Bones episode. Um, I admitted in that episode that I usually get so hooked by the idea of deeper secrets, further lore. And that I can often get impatient with the with the current narrative and what's happening, you know, in the now. But in okay. this book, okay. in this book, in Foundryside, I found a, a a book that completely flipped that on its head for me. And I want to say that I think this book has way, way too much lore for a volume of its size. You know, there were there were there were points that I got lost. I didn't care. We kept getting our narrative interrupted for several long-winded explanations of the overly complicated history as well as the convoluted magic system that resulted from such and uh, you know I, I had been barely following along having to stop the audiobook and repeat passages several times and I don't rightly remember if I mentioned so last episode but right now with a text in front of me it was about halfway through the first scene um, with Valeria where I actually stopped to write down this complaint you know, that I thought everything was a little too convoluted. It was just too long-winded. There were times where we got a pause in the action for this five-paragraph explanation, this two- or three-page explanation about the magic system, and I just, I don't know. Um, I felt that there was just way too much lore in this book, and for, for three books, I just didn't think it was justified. I spent so much time confused that it kind of took a little bit of, away from the book uh, for me. Well, yeah, so. I, I mean, I think that's fair. I I don't know if I would fully agree with that, sure, but sure. I I will say that ties into my issues with how convoluted things got and and how many different twists and turns there were and yeah and how he didn't really have the right amount of room to adequately develop yeah and uh, to to build Sorry, a foundation ahead. for that um and and that that brings me to my like ultimate rating you know like you know i gave this four stars on goodreads more properly i'd say maybe like a 3.75 sure sure like it's it's got a lot of good things going for it it's fun there's some extra cool scenes you know the you you go back to sanderson's zeroth law air on the side of awesome there's a lot of airing on the side of awesome there is especially in the second half of this book but there are real like there are real narrative and character issues at hand here where things either were artificially cut short or left undone or just weren't developed uh, adequately that 
it keeps what should have been maybe one of my favorite books of this year from being even in the conversation. Sure, sure. And I will reiterate with, with my point, my, my few uh, complaints there about the, the convoluted history, the magic system, and the way it has to be over-explained by its own nature. It has to be over-explained for you to understand it. I will say, I reiterate, that this could have been a result of the simple fact that the first half I read on audiobook the second half I read with the text and it could have been just the fact that I was at work and had to keep rewinding you know sections that that might have led to my overall kind of lack of comprehension and my kind of frustration with how much lore that we got because for me it just it didn't make a whole lot of sense and just kept there kept being there, there were more and more caveats here and there there were more and more additional info here and there and there was just I just I really couldn't follow um or uh, as a result, didn't really care too much about the overall lore and the history in this book with the higher fans and the Occidentals. I just, I don't know. It, to, to them, they kind of represent to me this faceless struggle that I still don't even have much more than a than a, than a glimpse of. So, I don't know. Okay. And uh, again, a few of the last things I have, just a couple of predictions to make. The original prediction I made, actually, about that kind of figure that's wrapped in black cloth, like a mummified corpse... Uh, the form made of you know fluttering moths. Um, I didn't immediately draw the correlation to Chrysides the Great. I thought definitely a hierophant, but perhaps like a truly evil one. Maybe maybe there was a threat that the hierophants were fighting before they vanished. You know they were consumed by their own creations. Um, so I thought maybe there's a little more insidious uh, thing to be considered there with that figure. Um, See, I would say that. Chrysides, everything we learned about him throughout this book makes him pretty insidious. Yeah, I mean, that could be it. That, that could be the answer right there, the fact that Chrysides <laughs> the Great was not who we thought he was. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, I think we still have more revelations about the nature of uh, Tribuno Condiano's supposed madness and the charge with which he gave the mountain, you know, find Hierophants. Um, and I think, to, to, to wrap that up, you know, Valyria is clearly going to cause a huge ruckus, and I feel she might come in handy in the struggle against whatever the heck that dark, that dark figure that Ophelia Dandolo super, you know, apparently serves might be. Oh, definitely. So, I, yeah. Yeah, and as, as a conclusion, my overall impressions of the quality of this book. All in all, I found it to be pretty, in, you know, enjoyable. It was an enjoyable read. But I wouldn't put it in the top tier of books that we've already covered, and I think it still has, you know, that said, it, I think it still has a lot of promise with the series going forward. I felt that, and as I mentioned last episode, the magic system, pretty cliche, the lore, as I said in this episode, incredibly long-winded, confusing, mysteries so convoluted they were difficult to keep track of, uh, but I think this book definitely left off feeling unfinished. There's clearly a lot more going to happen with the next volume, and I do look forward to covering that on the Inking Out Loud podcast when it does. I definitely yes. want, to, want to check that out. But as it currently stands, if I were to rate the book on an, an arbitrary scale of... Well, I, I wrote down an arbitrary scale of 10, uh, based solely on my own enjoyment, I would rate it a 7.5. So by your by your scale of 5, I would uh, I would say... 3.75. That's exactly the same. You know, I enjoyed it. I will say this. I enjoyed it about as much as I enjoyed Arcady Martin's A Memory Called Empire, which we just mm. finished covering. But, hold on, for vastly different reasons. Vastly mm. different reasons. 
Oh man, Arcady Martini. A memory called Empire. That's is, a that's a straight the, five is, star from me. Ah, so. uh, Arcady Martins. Her as a wordsmith, she is 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 a genius. She absolutely is. But I just I felt like nothing happened in that book until the very end. So I don't know. I just oh I, man, uh, I disagree so much. Anyway, <laughs> if if you want to hear why we disagree on that, go back and listen to our yes. memory called Empire episodes. Uh, yep. But but yeah, I, I think that's, that's everything uh, I have. A, a good wrap. Uh, shall we head into the final draft? Heck here? yes, we should head into the final draft. I'll even start us off, man. Yeah, what so, do you got? So what I got with me today is something that I, I'm i not sure if I've brought onto this podcast before. If I did, it would have been in the first episode for uh, my, my birthday. Uh, and that would be, I finally brought another scotch Ooh. to the podcast. This is a drink that I cannot get enough of. And this is my favorite scotch, by the way. What I have here is a Glenfiddich. 12-year-aged mm. single malt whiskey, or whiskey, scotch. That is the same thing. Whiskey, oh, uh, scotch is the type yeah. of whiskey, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, the, as far as scotches go, it's it's pretty modestly priced. It's only a $60 bottle. Um, but what, what I really appreciate about this scotch is the, is the amount of, as a scotch, you, you expect a kind of smokiness and earthiness, a kind of uh, peaty sort of deep, uh, bitter, I don't want to call it bitter taste. But there's a lot of fruitiness in this Glenfiddich as well. The Glenfiddich 12, it comes in a green bottle. I don't think it matters where you are. But that scotch, add like a three-quarter scotch, one-quarter water. That's your ratio. That's how I have it here. It's got just such a nice... Uh, I, I'll, again, I'll call it a spicy, fruity taste to it that I just I cannot get enough of. This is hands down my favorite... Well, I was going to say liquor, but this is my favorite booze in the world right here. If you're going to get me like a gift... You want to get Rob something that he loves? The Glenfiddich 12. I mean, that's there's, there's, there's nothing that really, in my books, matches that liquor right there. So, I, I'm not 100% on this. I'm not, like, the the scotch connoisseur that I am with beer. But I wouldn't call myself a connoisseur I'm, either. It's just my preferred liquor. I'm pretty sure. Well, so I'm enough of a, like, you know, scotch drinker that I know there are different, like, regions in Scotland that that produce pretty substantially different flavor profiles. Yep. And uh, the, like, uh, smoky, salty kind of... That's, like, the Islay scotch. And then you'll get, like, Lowland scotch, which is, like, the really peaty, you know... Like, you can taste the dinosaur decomposing in the <laughs> bottom of the peat pit. Um, uh, and then there's Speyside and Highland. And Speyside, I think think is what Glenfiddich is and Speyside scotches tend to be more like floral and well, fruity I've, and citrusy I've got it right here Glenfiddich single malt scotch whiskey independent our, our signature single malt it's pioneer of the single malt category uniquely balanced or married I don't know why I thought that was balanced I read a wholly different word an oak tons for a beautifully complex nose and refreshingly complex flavor it doesn't mention what exact kind of scotch it is unless it does on the back. Okay. I just looked it up. It is a Speyside whiskey. Oh, noise. Noise. Yeah. Uh, and that is my favorite region. Like I I It is such a good I'm not a huge it's fan of like the finish. really peaty or smoky scotches. Splash of Highland, water makes a beautiful yeah. zipper. Yeah. Um but but anyway, uh yeah, yeah uh, Glenfiddich 12, I've had it before. It is very tasty. Yes. Now, so yeah, that's about it for the Glenfiddich 12. Drew, my dude, 
What are you drinking, man? Uh, so, I, I have to apologize. Uh -oh. Last week, uh -oh. I, I, I talked a big game, uh, and I did my <laughs> best. I tried to swing a trade for this beer. I was not able to get it. Um, I'll tell you what it was, though. Yeah, so, no, I definitely so I live in, know. I live in Colorado, which mm. makes this trade, like, more doable, but I, I just, like, couldn't close it in, sure, in sure. time. Um, so there's a, a brewery uh, up up in the mountains south of me in Fort Collins called Casey Brewing and Blenders. And they do, I mean, with without any exaggeration, some of the best farmhouse sales and saisons in in the world. Like, okay. they're... The stuff they're producing is out of this world good. Um, uh, they they have uh, two like fairly accessible. Um, I say fairly accessible. They don't distribute like you, know, you you either get this like on tap at a place that you know like a, a you know a craft bar that got a, a barrel in or whatever, or else you went to the brewery and like bought a bottle. Um, so they have a, a funky blender and. A, the uh, Casey Family Preserves, um, and then they have a blend version of those two called One Key. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, and I I tried so <laughs> hard to close a trade on this thing, but I just oh I couldn't pull I it off. Face palm so hard if you had actually brought that to the podcast. Yeah, that's perfect. And, and what makes it worse is that last weekend I was at the, you know, the Weldworks Invitational Festival. I think I, I mentioned that. Um, yeah, yeah, you had mentioned And that. Casey was at the Weldworks Festival and brought two different variants of One Key. So I had it there. Uh, and, but but well, I... You've had the One Key, so how did it be? Yes. How was it? Oh my god, uh, it was so good. Um, yeah? I, I had a... Uh, uh, two variants of it. One of them was like it was like raspberry, blackberry, and cherry, and then one of them was just the blackberry. The 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 triple fruited one was there was like a little too much going on with the fruit, but the just the straight blackberry one was phenomenal. I mean, nice. Oh, oh and, and and so when I say like you know farmhouse sale saison, you know this is like tart, um, you know. Uh, um, I'm, I'm blanking. Wow. I'm, apparently I've had a lot of... I'll tell you this. Like, I've had a large bottle of the beer I brought today, and it's 11.6%. Yeah. And I came from brunch before this where I had, like, four mimosas, oh. so I'm, I'm a little struggling want, right now. I want to say um, that... I'm, and this is something I forgot to mention with mine. That, I mean, my, with my Glenfig 12, for those who can't tell, the my slurring of my words, I've had a substantial <laughs> amount of that one during the course of this podcast. Honestly, if I were to try to quantify it, looking at this glass, I would say seven shots. Shots. Oh my god. Oh, you drank way more than I, I Let's see. This, I'm showing you the glass right here, Drew. You see where it starts to get wide right there? I had about three of these. And then some, Oh, yeah. Some you're at like that. six or seven oh, shots. Easily. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, the the beer I brought, though. Uh, oh, the beer so, you did bring. Yes. Let's get into that. Uh, I, I'm drinking beer from Funkworks in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, another brewery known for their saisons, their farmhouse sales, although this is not one of those. <laughs> I am drinking an 11.6% barrel-aged Belgian dark ale. Belgian dark. Brewed with cacao nibs. And chocolate. 
Oh, okay, I had no uh, uh, what the hell that was. <laughs> okay. I mean, like... For those who can't like, see, which is everybody, I had a really confused face there, Drew, just saw it. Just, just call it chocolate. Go with okay. that. Um, but anyway, this is like... I mean, it's very boozy, very strong. It's got that like kind of like, like sharp, sharp Belgian quad kind of character to it. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's a good amount of that, you know, um, like cocoa on the nose. Um, I don't know. It's it's good. It's it's a solid beer, uh, but it is called Dark Prophet. Oh. Off. It's not called that. Are you serious? Show me the bottle. You son of a bitch. It is actually called Dark Prophet. Holy crap. I mean, so that's I couldn't kind do of one even key. better than one key. I mean, I don't think it's better than no, one key. No, I think it is I better mean, than one key because Clef is not the only key in Tavon. Oh, but he's the one key. <laughs> I don't know. But, but yeah, yeah. Damn. That was, so, I think, honestly, it was a damn good effort. That was, that was good. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, <laughs> that that was my backup plan. I, I almost brought a, a a beer from Collective Arts Brewing Company, which I've actually featured on this yeah, podcast you have. before. Yeah, how the hell do you remember that? I saw the recognition in your eyes when you said that. <laughs> how do you remember that? Drew? Oh, it was only uh, it was only a couple episodes ago, right? Oh, uh, true. You would have had to write down the YouTube. Bit. By the way, I have episode uh, twenty one on YouTube. It's uploaded. I uploaded it myself. Um, so that's live now. Mm. Got to tell you that I'm telling you right now, live on the podcast, everybody. <laughs> but yeah, I almost had another one. Uh, actually, I'm not going to say the name of it because I may bring it to the next one. It's kind of a oh, weekly involved name. It's like it's kind of a pun, not not a pun. It's a bit of wordplay, but it, it kind of works for any book. So I'll, I'll save it probably for next podcast. I'll I'll tell you right now, we're going into the wheel of time after this. Yeah, we are. I'm scared. Like I have. No clue what beers I'm going to be bringing. And this on is something it. that you, like, that, yeah, for the, the wheel of time for both of us is such a big deal for us to start yeah. finally. Episode 27 is going to be our first wheel of time episode, isn't it? Yes, it is. Oh my god! To me, 27 is. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain it later. Um, but yeah, so on that note, uh, this has been episode 26 it of has. the Eking Out Loud podcast, and next up we episode. are doing the first part of the Eye of the World. Um, you know, first book of the Wheel of Time. We will be reading up through the chapter called Wolf Brother. Uh, this is essentially. I'm so excited to start the Wheel of Time. Sorry, I just I got real. I couldn't contain it anymore while you were talking. Uh, this is covering the content of From the Two Rivers, yes. which is uh, back in 2001. Um, you know. Tours at the time, YA fantasy imprint called Starscape released Eye of the World and The Great Hunt as like YA versions split in half. Yeah. And uh, From the Two Rivers and To the Blight are the Wheel of Time volumes. So we will be covering the content of From the Two Rivers. This includes the Eye of the World up through Wolf Brother, but more importantly, it includes the new prologue yeah, Robert Jordan it does. wrote titled Ravens. So if you don't own From the Two Rivers, you haven't heard of this before, Google it. You can find the text of it online. Uh, this is a, a fairly short, you know, a little scene from Egwene's point of view as a nine-year-old girl in the Two Rivers. And it is very interesting. It's, 
It gives us even more insight into her character, and we will definitely be dis discussing this at length. So, uh, yeah, at length. Yeah, if you don't own From the Two Rivers or you're not familiar with this prologue, check it out before you come and uh, listen to our episode yeah. next week. And I'll say just, I mean, Drew and I love The Wheel of Time, so hang on to your asses, everyone. These next oh, yeah. episodes that are coming are going to be something wild. And and the other you know kind of side of that is while we're covering the content of From the Two Rivers, we're going to be doing a little bit of an intro to the wheel, of, you know, wheel of time and yeah, uh, our relationships to the series. Uh, we're going to have a couple of special guests on uh, as we go through the wheel of time Hopefully more in its entirety. Yeah. we're going to have many different special guests, including some people whose names you'll probably recognize, uh, but. Yeah, we're planning some pretty pretty fun stuff for our reread of Robert Jordan's just <laughs> magnum oh, opus. So God, and, uh, damn, ready for this. Yeah, and and so that'll that'll be starting up next week. If you want early access to it, as you're listening to this episode, if you check out our Patreon, we have a tier that will give you early access to episodes. We have a couple other tiers with fun uh, fun benefits, so check that out. We're, we're using that just to support our sound engineer and our artist, uh -huh. who's going to be developing some pretty fun thumbnails uh, yes. for the Wheel of Time series as we go on here. So, uh, yeah. As always, though, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yo! And we appreciate your support we appreciate your engagement and so we're looking forward to you having you on for our wheel of time read sounds good all right peace out we'll everybody catch you next time bye <laughs>